Um, my name is Seth Owens. Uh, I get the privilege to serve as the creative de- director here. Um, I also, with my wife, uh, we get to serve as the worship pastors. Um, and we're, I'm, I'm really thankful to be with you guys this morning, being able to, to share this word that I really feel like God has laid on my heart. Um, before I do anything, announcements or sermon or anything, I just want to ask my wife to stand up because I want to let you guys know how much, how huge of a strength my wife is to me. And uh, she can pray like crazy. She can prophesy. She has a pastor's heart. And her intimacy with God that I see her walk out every day convicts me to change the way I do things. Um, second only to the Holy Spirit, that is my greatest comforter and greatest support on this earth. So thank you, babe. Um, we got a youth conference coming up called Gravity Conference uh, in March, um, March 13th through 14th. And we're actually going to be having uh, registration signups this next week. Um, I really want to encourage parents, get your youth signed up for that. Youth, sign up for that. Um, I got the privilege to be a guest at last, last um, year's conference, and, I, had, and I, jo- I joined myself. And this year, I actually get the privilege to lead worship there and to speak to the guys during one of the morning sessions. And I just, I couldn't be more excited for that. I want to encourage you in this. I remember what high school was like, high school and middle school. And regardless of what your, your kids are telling you, it is extremely hard to walk the skinny path in high school. You know, uh, I know what it's like to live one way at school and then come home and pretend like everything's hunky-dory with my parents. Um, So don't let that confuse you. Um, These conferences and summer camps, they're not the key to a relationship with God. That's not a point I'm trying to make. But they are an excellent shot in the arm. And they are a great encouragement. A great revitalization and relighting of the flame. So let me tell you that it's worth it. I think it's, is it $99? Is that what it is, chum? Yes. And it's worth it. It's worth every, every penny. Because I remember going to a summer camp, not so different from this conference, and I can remember a day where my life was different and I never turned back. Wow. <clears throat> I, w- I was tossing around a few different ideas for uh, the message this weekend. Um, except I was continually being brought back to Ephesians chapter four. I had these different sermon topics that were kind of laid out in front of me, but Ephesians chapter four was this common theme in all of them. And then I went to Ignite, um, which is our young adult group, uh, last week, and we had small groups. And I just started kind of going off about this topic and uh, just started really, honestly, preaching. And the, and the other guys in the small group, there was like five of us, started just looking at me and be like, okay. And uh, I realized that it was probably time for me to stop talking and this was a small group setting and not a teaching setting and I needed to just, you know, cool down a little bit. But right after that, a few of the guys in that group are, are my good friends and they're like, uh, I think you might have found what you're supposed to speak on. And, um, I, you know, I sought the Lord in it and I really felt confirmation that it is exactly what he, the, the word that he had for this church. Um, nevertheless, it brought me back to Ephesians chapter four. So let's open up our Bibles and let's read starting in verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, 
to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for worship and just showing up. Lord, we love your manifested presence. I can't get enough of your presence, God. Lord, we ask that that, that, that type of presence, that type of um, just Holy Spirit activity would, would flow right into this message. Lord, we hand this to you. I hand this to you, God. I just want to be your vessel. I just want to be the donkey that you ride in on. All glory to you, God. Lord, won't you speak in this place? Won't you take over? We love you and we trust you, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Believe it or not, I tend to be a little bit of a homebody. Um, some people assume that because I'm a pastor's kid and because I'm on stage a lot that I'm an extrovert. But um, I've done quite a bit of research on the area because I was, uh, I really liked psychology in college. I didn't major in it, but anyhow. I, uh, I did some study on what that means. And a lot of people think that introvert and extrovert means good around people, not so good around people, or shy or outgoing. And they really don't mean that. Introvert and extrovert, to my understanding and from what I've studied, are speaking to where you're energized and where you are filled up. In what situations are you filled? And... Thinking about that, I am absolutely leaned towards the, the introvert side because although I do enjoy being a, a, among people, I, that is, that's where my energy feels drained and when I'm alone, I just feel like I'm charged back up. And when I say alone, I mean if I'm with my wife, I mean, I mean I'm alone. If I'm with my, my immediate family, those, those, those kind of situations, I can feel really, really charged up. And uh, I just, so I just wanna be a little bit transparent with you today that when we do the greeting times, you know, like at the beginning of the service here and at Ignite, th those are the two most uncomfortable points in the entire week for me. You see, and I know that you go, okay, yeah, right, Seth, you're speaking to us. You see, up here on the stage when, when I'm just speaking, I still feel a little bit of an isolation that keeps me in my comfort zone. But when, I, when I'm mingling among everyone, I'm telling you, I have to do everything inside me to train myself to go, okay, smile, say hi, welcome, and, and then remember, and, and find out how to exit the conversation without going, okay, bye. Because <laughs> that's how I feel every time. I'm like, hey, so glad to see you, welcome. I'm Seth, uh-huh, yeah. That's how I feel. So I just wanna let you know, I'm gonna continue greeting people during those times, and I'm gonna continue you know, stirring myself and trying to do well, but I'm not comfortable in that situation. Don't, don't let anything I do fool you. You see, it's, it's, it's to such the extent that I was that kid when I, I would get asked to go to people's houses. I remember specifically my good, good friend Hunter. He was in my wedding. He's one of my best, I mean, one of my best friends. Um, and I've, I've known him since I was seven years old. But when we were little, he would ask me to come, he would ask me to come over. Our, our, our dads were um, on staff together at City Harvest Church in Vancouver, Washington. And I remember some Sundays going up to my mom after he asked him, I'm going, okay, mom, here's the deal. So Hunter asked me to come over and I don't want to tell him I don't want to come over. Will you please just say I can't? And so I'll go tell him that you said so and that way I can just come hang out at home because I just want to be with the family today and I want to hang out alone. And my, my mom got me and she was like, of course, honey. 
Seth, you can't go to Hunter's. And I would go over and I'd be like, Hunter, bro, I'm so sorry, man. My mom said I can't come. And I recognized that at seven years old, that's a little bit deceitful and it's a little bit wrong, but it's what I did. It's what I did. But my, my mom was okay with doing that for me because she knew, she knew the, the heart of her son. Um, I, I, just to give you kind of a picture of who I was, that I would say, I mean, I kind of went even to the older. I would say that I was still in this kind of stage until I was like 11 or 12 years old where um, I would just like to, my, my parents got me this real sword, like a metal sword. Like they were, the, they were the coolest parents. They let me shoot guns. They let me have a real sword. And we had an orchard and we had six acres of woods. And I would be out there and I'd be fighting orcs because I'm a freak for Lord of the Rings. And I would be fighting orcs and, and I have this whole world imagined around me and I'd be, you know, doing that. Or, or I would have my, my baseball bat and a ball and I would just toss it up and, and, and hit it. Except I had this whole, like, lived in this world where like I kept my stats you know I would toss my I toss the ball up and hit it but I keep like my batting average and my home runs because there was a chicken a chicken pen at the end of the field a long illustration to explain I liked being alone <laughs> and and I was very comfortable being alone because I, I I had this imagination that and honestly if other people were trying to play with me in that time it would actually I mean, oh gosh, I don't want to say this, but it took away from it because they would, they would come and I remember my mom telling me that she tried to play with me action figures one time and I was like, yeah, you can play and then we started playing and I was like, mom, you're not doing it right. Now, I, I don't remember saying that, but she says I did and I just remember like thinking about the, I would, I would really have this thought like, do I want to play by myself today or do I want to play with friends? Well, if I play by myself, I can have my whole world and I can make all the rules but if I have a friend, then you know, they're going to influence it and then the game's not going to go exactly how I want. They're going to be saying that, you know, one thing happened with the orcs and with Gandalf and stuff but I'm just like, no, it didn't. Come on. I'm, I'm the one writing this story. And uh, with this came along this, this kind of desire to stay at home, and I had this uh, discomfort with staying at people's houses. And I remember the first time that I attempted to stay at someone's house, attempted. Uh, it was my friend Steven, I was five years old. He had this, other bro- this older brother named Micah. We hung out, we had a lot of fun, we played video games, we played Legos, and it was a great time. Um, but when it came time to go to sleep, you know, like that's game time where, you know, if you're scared, you're gonna get scared right there. I was just like, okay. I got this, and I was laying on the floor, and then Micah started telling me that they had spiders, and started telling me all these weird things about their house, and I was, I was already on edge, I'm already going, this is my first sleepover, I'm trying to be cool, I'm trying to be one of the cool kids, oh, you know, you know that song that's like, I wish that I could be like the cool kids, cause all the cool kids, they, except for me, it was like, I wish I could be all like all the cool kids because all the cool kids sleep over at their friend's house and they're not pansies who, who call mom and go home and that's exactly what I did that night. I called my mom, I was like, mom, I don't want to stay and she was like, okay, we'll come pick you up. But from that point forward, from that point forward, I never felt uncomfortable uh, staying at the people's house before because I knew I had a way out. I knew I had an out if it, if, it got, if it got rough, if it got scary, if it got spooky, if I got uncomfortable, I could just make that phone call and I'll be done. See, one of the most crippling obstacles to relationship is that we enter in from the beginning with this mindset that if things go south, if the older brother starts talking about the spiders, if we think the house is haunted, that we can get out. This mindset impacts essentially all forms of relationship, friendship, dating, marriage, and my focus for today, the church. This is the escape clause. Defined in the legal world as a provision and a contract that enables a party to terminate contractual obligations in specified circumstances. 
And I know that that's jargon or whatnot, but we all have those. We all have one. And one of the most unfortunate aspects of this idea is that because we enter into relationship with the perspective that we can get out of it, we then hold this subconscious or conscious assumption that the people with which we are coming to relationship come with a similar perspective. This, I call this the assumption of fragility or the assumption of being fragile, and it leads us to approach relationships with this unhealthy and corrosive lack of trust. Because if I come with unspoken stipulations that a certain behavior, a certain disagreement, or a certain offense will cause my departure from the relationship, how on earth can I come with any other expectation that the other person will come with a similar mindset? So what does this lead to? Well, because this fragile state or this supposed or assumed fragile state presents way too high a risk for us to actually approach someone when we have an offense or when we, when we need to address conflict with them, what happens a lot of times is that we usually live with silent unforgiveness that turns into bitterness or we kind of expel this inner turmoil through gossip. Neither of which, of course, restore any kind of health or peace to the relationship. So ironically, the very thing that we were trying to avoid by not addressing the situation directly in the beginning happens anyway because we can't manage our emotions correctly. Except now, instead of only having to traverse through the original offense, we now have sin baggage as well because we're harboring unforgiveness and bitterness toward that person. The two contexts which I see for this particular message to be most prevalent and most pertinent in talking about this escape clause are marriage and the church. My personal belief, and I recognize I could be wrong, I'm 22 years old, I'm a little green in this. My personal belief is that many, many divorces could be avoided if we stopped entering with the idea, with, with, the, with the philosophy, with the thought that there's a back door. Jesus was very clear about the grounds for which, upon which divorce would be justified. Very clear in Matthew 19. You should read it sometime. But let me tell you a few things that you won't find if you do read it. Poor spending habits. Differing parenting philosophies. Wrinkles. Weight gain. Hair loss. Personality change. Personality change. Not there. And my least favorite, last and least, irreconcilable differences. You will not find those in the grounds that Jesus has laid out for divorce. And yet, year after year, divorce papers are signed for those very reasons and ones similar to them. And similarly, we see people in the church <clears throat> go to a church, get offended, leave the church, rinse, lather, repeat. Go to a church, get offended, leave the church, rinse, lather, repeat. And it's the cycle that, we, that, we, that, I, that, I, that I see people in. But I would like to submit that this isn't a marriage problem and this isn't a church problem. This is a culture problem or you could call it a sin problem or at its most basic level, this is a human problem. More than ever, we live in this I make this face when I think about it because it grosses me out. This age of convenience. A little too much time, a little too much work, 
a little too much sacrifice, a little too much awkwardness, a little too much tension, and we wash our hands of the situation. We say, it's just not worth it. Just not worth it. We have become a people addicted to the honeymoon. And I'm not just talking about inside the context of marriage. I think you know what I'm talking about. We're addicted to novelty, to the feeling of freshness, to the, to the, the feeling of, of starting new, of the grass is greener on this side for a while. But please don't, don't, don't get the, the impression that uh, I'm against the honeymoon, okay? I'm not, I, I mean, I'm, I've been married for, for just under five months, and I am so stoked to be married. Oh my goodness. If you know me, you know that I am just bonkers for Micaiah, my wife. And the thing is, I, I'm not just chasing after her, she's chasing after me. And we are just, when you, two people chase, have you ever, pictures two people chasing after each other, like two cheetahs. Okay, that just became like a picture that I didn't mean it to be, but I, what I'm saying is that, is that honeymoon is beautiful, okay? So we, we like this honeymoon, but roots, roots intimidate us. And covenant, though we say, oh yes, covenant, that's my covenant, brother. When we think of the, it actual, actually practiced out, it makes us shake on our boots a little bit. The forever forever. You guys seen the Sandlot? Forever. That's what it is. That's what covenant is. Forever. <laughs> you see, don't get me wrong. The honeymoon, the beginning stages of marriage is a sacred time. In biblical times, the groom wouldn't even be allowed to go out into war for the first year because he was there to stake, to care for his wife and to build the foundational strength of their marriage. I believe that the honeymoon is a God idea, but honeymoon was never meant to be used in the plural. We were meant to have honeymoons, have a honeymoon and then check out, and then have a honeymoon and then check out. Nor was it meant to be a perpetual state of existence. The honeymoon is a season. It is a beautiful season, which I am enjoying thoroughly, but it is a season nevertheless, one that we are to enter, to embrace. It's okay to enjoy it. In fact, I encourage you, when you are in a honeymoon season, enjoy it. Connor and Brianna are about to get married this summer. You guys, enjoy your honeymoon. Enjoy your first year of marriage. It's gonna be sick. It's gonna be awesome. But I'll let you know, and you already know this, it is a season that comes to a conclusion and that we must move forward from when the time is right. I can't tell you how many times that I've heard, I've seen or heard of people walking inside the doors of a church, including this one, going, oh my gosh, I, I, found, I finally found an authentic church. I finally found a church that really loves people and is real and accepts people for exactly who they are. I finally found my home church. Turn the clock six to 12 months. Those people, and they call themselves Christians. Did you, did, do you know what they did to me? Does it not happen? <laughs> yeah, 
it, it, they leave these six to 12 months later because an, an unspoken or spoken expectation was not met. Because one or more of those stipulations in their escape clause was violated. See, I've seen this scenario happen a lot. I mean, I'm, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a pastor's kid, so I've, I've been through it. I've seen it. And what it drives me is to ask this question, and I know that this question is gonna seem tough, and it may come across harsh, but please bear with me. Ask it with me. What if, what if we treated the local church body less like a boyfriend or girlfriend and more like a husband or wife? But what about this? What if we saw each other as family rather than a 90-day risk-free trial? What if? Now, I, I, and I, I realize that that question is loaded and that question has emotion to it. And that question, I'm sure some of you are gritting your teeth right now and going, you don't know, Seth. <laughs> and the truth is, I, I fully recognize that there are legitimate, acceptable reasons for leaving a church community. I'm not here to argue that. And, and, and I also recognize that, that most of us who are sitting in the seats here today, most of us in this room, we're a part of another local church body before we came here. I'm not, I'm not dumb, I'm not ignorant to that. And I'm also not, I'm, I'm not here to, to, to argue whether the reason you left your church was a good one or not, and I'm not here to beat you up about it. I'm not here so that you can feel condemned and guilty and go, oh my gosh, I can't believe I did that. Th that isn't the point of this message at all. I mean, if, if you're fairly new to this church, and you feel like you still may be in the honeymoon stages of, of, of your relationship with Heart of the City, more power to you. <laughs> Hallelujah, I'm so glad that you still have the warm fuzzies. That's awesome, I'm glad you've decided to call this place your home. But when those fuzzies leave, let me, let me exhort you in something. When the fuzzy feelings leave, your passion for this family and for this house does not have to. That's right. That's good. It doesn't have to. Because I, <clears throat> I've seen, I, I talked earlier about, uh, just a moment ago, about these families who, who I've seen come and have great hopes and then leave, but I've also seen quite the opposite. And the purpose of this message is to challenge each one of us to persevere in reconciliation with each other. And I've seen that happen. I know it can. We don't have to conform to the cultural status quo that says, right at the point of conflict, I'm out. You know, we're going good, everyone's nice to me. Oh, whoa, whoa, pastor didn't smile at me today. <laughs> you walked by me without saying hi. Honey, we should go to the next church. This one's a, not a keeper. It's true though, it's true. But I've seen families stick it out. I've seen families, there are families still here today that were with us from the very first year. I think of families like, like and, and please, if I don't mention your name and you are among these people, please forgive me, I, I, I will forget. Uh, later I'm gonna talk about how I'm flawed and, and, and we'll get into that. But I think of families like Don and Lois Ward, Dean and Tammy Sears, Sean and Mindy Sizemore, Neil and Diana Peterson, Neil's up there right now, Ryan and Jamie Davis, Roger and Deanne Johnson, they're back there right now, I see them. John Sanford, Tony and Amy Lincoln, Chris Beatty and Joe Miller, and, much, and, and, and others, like I said, I, I can't remember all the names, but I've seen these people get hurt. 
I've seen these people get offended. I've seen them to the point of tears, to the point of raised voices, to the point of not wanting to say anything at all. And I've seen them die to their flesh. I've seen them die to their emotions, die to their pride for the sake of reconciliation and for the sake of love. But you can ask any of those people that I just mentioned, including myself, if that's the easy way, and it is certainly not. If you're looking for the nice, smooth road, staying connected in a church body is not that one. My, my dad used to preach, I remember as a young boy, I, I, I'll never, the picture will never leave my mind. He talks about tribulation. Tribulation is described as to be made narrow by pressure. To be made narrow by pressure. And, and, it's, and it's a description also in the Bible of, of, of the birthing process. And it isn't fun. I mean, I feel like a man talking about, I'm not talking about the birthing process right now. I'm not even going to pretend like I begin to have an inkling of understanding about the birthing process. But I'm talking about tribulation as a whole. It isn't fun. It isn't nice. Being made narrow by pressure makes you want to throw in the towel. But when we stick with it, we come out stronger. Just listen to James. In the, in the beginning of, of James, right after a succinct greeting, James verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 2 through 4, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now I know that that's a big statement and it has theological implications that I'm not gonna get into today. I'm sure Connor could take you through the exegesis of that and it would be beautiful. I mean, that guy can pick apart scripture like bam. But let me just, in simple terms, in layman's terms, <laughs> um, the, the point is that we are not called to walk out when the going gets tough. Bobby has, I, know, I, know this, I don't know if this is your saying, but I've heard you say it, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. When, when the going gets tough, and it doesn't mean that the tough get going, the tough get walking away, the tough get moving, the, the tough get stirring, the tough get hold, the tough put on their armor, the tough talk through it. Now, I know that there are many important things that we are supposed to, that we should know and that we should practice in order to be steadfast in relationships, but I want to lay out five truths today. Five truths that I think are essential for us to stay rooted and for us to stay connected to the church family that we have been called to. So these are your points, if you wanna take notes or take notes in your head or iPhone or whatnot. Number one, the pastors, this is the, this is the part I was talking about where I'm gonna tell you that I'm flawed. The pastors, staff, and other leaders in this church will let you down at some point, if we haven't already, and I'm pretty sure, I'm willing to bet that we have. We are flawed, we are broken, we are human. Ecclesiastes 7.20 said, surely there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Romans 3.23-24, for all have sinned, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. I get that I'm sure most of you have heard those scriptures a dozen times and that you believe them to be true. But what I don't understand is that somehow I still feel that there is this 
silent feeling of, that, 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 that the church leadership is exempt from those words. That we're supposed to be, that we're supposed to be perfect. I'm telling you, I am just as human as you and my parents are just as human as you or anybody else. We face the same temptations. We face the same bad days. We face the same, okay, I'm about to get an attitude. And when then sometimes we don't just about to get an attitude, we get an attitude and we say things we don't mean. We say stupid things. I'm gonna say stupid things. And it's gonna, it's gonna be ugly sometimes. But the thing is, I think we have to come to agreement on something that there's only ever been one perfect shepherd and there only ever will be one perfect shepherd and his name is Jesus. And I'm not him. And Don's not him. Don's pretty close. No. Don's not him. My parents are not him. None of the pastors. Debbie's like, his wife. His wife was like, you don't know the half of it. Um, let's move on to number two. The, the point is, Jesus is the only one who's perfect. The battle for unity and reconciliation must be fought in the natural and the spiritual because both our sinful nature and the lies of the enemy tell us to give up when things get difficult. 2 Corinthians 2.10 says, anyone who you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. This is, this is where I want you to zone in. So that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. We cannot be ignorant to the designs of Satan. And then Ephesians 6, 12 through 13 says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces uh, of evil in, in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, let's say it together, to stand firm. You know, our fickle emotions by themselves without any help from the spiritual world can throw us off track. I think, I think we can, we know that. But there is a spiritual aspect to discord and to division that we must be aware of. We have to. The enemy hates when believers dwell in unity and harmony and he's gonna throw just about everything he can at us to break us apart. I used to play this game on the Xbox called Call of Duty Modern Warfare. How many of you guys have played that? Sweet. It's a fun game. Um, but I remember this one level um, where you have this partner, and I think he's Australian or something like that. It's this snow level, and you're about to enter into the enemy's camp, and you're about to, like, ambush them, and it's, oh, it's such a cool level because on it, like, you get to do this, like, ice pick thing where, never mind. It's really, really cool. But you go in, you're about to go in, and, and the guy says, he's kind of leading you. He's kind of your leader, and so you kind of feel, like, this security with him, and it's like, oh, man, he's like my brother in arms. He's like, stay frosty. <laughs> and, and you're like, oh, yeah, we're about to get into it. I better stay frosty. And although that might seem like a really, a really silly phrase to use in everyday life, we've got to stay frosty in our spiritual walk. We have to stay alert. We have to keep our wits about us. Because the Bible says the enemy is a wise old adversary. You know, I think it's plenty appropriate to minimize the power and the authority of Satan because Jesus has conquered the grave and Satan has been defeated. But let me tell you something, what we cannot minimize is that the guy has been in the business of evil for a very long time. He knows a little something about deceiving people. 
He knows a little something about planting lies in your head that will cause you to break off from community and enter into a cycle of, of lack of self-worth and depression and anxiety and suicidal thoughts. He's good at it. We must keep our guard. We must put on our spiritual armor. We must be ready to fight the good fight or he'll ambush us in our minds. Number three, a deep lasting relationship cannot be built by attending weekend services only. If we want to feel included, supported, and invested, we must commit ourselves to fellowship outside that context. Acts 2, 44 through 46. I think, as soon as I say Acts 2, I hope you know what I'm about to talk about. As soon as you say, I don't think that we can talk about Acts 2 enough in the church. I feel like, I've even, I've even suggested to my dad before, we should put this plaque up in the church that has the last like seven verses of Acts 2 up and say, this is what we've committed to do. This is what we've committed to do, to be this Acts church. So let's read this together. Acts 2, 44 through 46. All who believed, this isn't even all of it. This is just, this is just three verses. All who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Here it is. I just lost my place. Oh, you have it right here, huh? So you, you get a cheat. And day by day, attempting, uh, attending the temple... This is it. Attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Okay? I think sometimes we get this perspective that, that like, this, the, the, the corporate weekend services are like the main course of what it means to be a Christian. And then discipleship or are, 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 are small groups, the small, small groups get this kind of like little tag along as if they're like, oh yeah, that's a very good, um, what is it called? What is it called when you eat vitamins? They're a good supplement. supplement. It's a very good supplement to a Christian life. Small groups are not a supplement to a Christian life. It's not like the, the, the corporate services are this Harley and then small groups are that little bucket that the guest sits in and goes, I'm just the small group people. No, corporate services, corporate services and small groups are like two jet engines going at full throttle, hand in hand, all the time. Can't have one without the other. Okay, corporate services, small groups. Okay? Okay? There's something to it. Craig Brown, my good friend, says, decisions are typically made within the context of a service, but discipleship occurs within the context of relationship. I think that he hit the, the nail on the head with this one. We cannot continue to grumble about not feeling involved if we're not pursuing relationship outside of a one and a half hour corporate service once a week. We cannot do it. I understand. We all have legitimate reasons for why we can't start a small group or we can't be involved in a small group. Okay? I know. I know what you're thinking. Seth, you don't know how busy I am. You don't know how busy I am. You don't know how, I don't even want to talk about myself. You don't know how busy Don is. You don't know how busy Bobby Carmody is. Bobby doesn't even work at this church. He's not even a paid staff and this guy somehow fits 126 hours into 24 hours every day. 
He not only leads a small group with his wife, but oversees our small group ministry. Let me tell you something. From the day that you were born to the day that you die, this will ring true. A man does what he values, and he values what he does. And people communicate priority with their feet. I will know your priorities by where I find you, by what you spend your time doing. You can tell me all day long that you wanna have stronger relationship with people in the church, but if you are not investing in relationships throughout the week and you think that's gonna happen during a corporate service, I'm telling you, I don't believe you. I don't believe you. I will believe you when I see you taking steps forward to be in a small group, to start a small group. That is the context in which we become brothers and sisters and not just people sitting next to each other in a church. Number four, true authentic love is not a cookie cutter fairy tale. If we're going to cultivate this love, we have to be willing to have the tough conversations and then press forward. My favorite worship song, and I've heard a lot of worship songs growing up in the church. I mean, I've been listening to worship music since I could even comprehend what music was. And my favorite worship song of all time is called How He Loves. It's by a man named John Mark McMillan. Many, many people think that that song is by David Crowder Band because they've popularized it. And you know, that's the one that gets played on the radio. I, I, I especially love the, the imagery in the song, the way that it describes love. And, and specifically, so heaven meets earth like a sloppy wet kiss. And I know that a few of you in this service just went, I don't like that. But let me tell you why I do. I like that lyric because it flies in the face of legalism and religiosity. That's why I like it. That's one of the reasons I like it. See, other artists have done popular renditions of the song and chose to take out that lyric. And I have no animosity towards them because I know exactly why they did it. They did it because of us. They did it because Christianity as a whole has become so out of touch with reality that we can't handle messy love. Love lived out in community gets dicey. It gets scary. It gets sloppy. Matthew 18, it's the famous chapter about dealing with offenses. Let's read verses 15 and 16. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained a brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Luke 17, three through four, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. That's tough instruction right there. I know I don't always follow it. It's so much easier to just go to someone else, another friend, and be like, this person is bothering me. Oh my gosh, they're giving me such a time. They said this to me. And like I said, from the beginning, that does not restore health. It does not restore peace in the relationship. It's the easy way, once again, the easy road, maybe the smooth road for a while. I got to move on because I'm about to run out of time. My dad has this saying, come to Heart of the City Church and get offended. 
It's like a welcome now. Instead of like, come to Heart of the City Church where we love people and you are gonna just have the best time in your life. And you're, no, no, let's just say it like it is. Come to Heart of the City Church and at some point, eventually, your feelings are gonna get hurt. That is inevitable. Done, done deal. If you wanna sit here, if you wanna be a part of this church because you're never gonna get your feelings hurt, sorry, it's gonna happen. That's not a decision that we can make. Our feelings are going to get hurt, but the decision that we do have the responsibility to make is the response. A response that's gonna send you on a road toward bitterness and cynicism, or a a road toward restoration and reconciliation, and that is a choice that only you can make. Last one, number five. We We all have an escape clause written into the implicit contracts of our relationships, a boundary that if crossed, will cause us to exit the relationship. Listen, I I would like to think, I know that we would all like to think that in a given relationship that we would stick through anything. But being that we do have our sinful nature, there are extreme circumstances where we will call uncle. And there's some of you going, Seth, you don't know how loyal I am. Seth, I would go unto death for this person, for this relationship. Huh, that is a familiar saying, is it not? You wanna know who else said that? Peter, the first pastor of a church, one of Jesus' right-hand men, said that to Jesus himself. He said, I'll never deny you. Jesus said, you will deny me three times before even the rooster crows. And he did. Now, I wanna make it clear that this boundary that we have is not necessarily unhealthy, but it is important that we identify where it stands so that we may ensure that we are not operating in hypersensitivity, or for lack of a better term, honeymoon addiction. There may be a day when God calls you away from this place. This is a a hard statement. This is a very, very hard statement. There may be a day when God calls you away from this place, and when that day comes, I hope that it is with tears in your eyes and mine. But please, until then, do not insult the voice of the great I am by claiming that he has spoken when the only things that your ears have been open to are your own fragile emotions. Please, if God speaks to you, so be it. Go. But if it's not God, if you haven't learned to discern between the voice of God, and, and, and when I say haven't learned, I still am totally confused sometimes. I'm like, God, is this my emotions? Is this you? Is this my emotions of you? If you are not sure that you know that you know that you know that you haven't heard the voice of God, don't claim it. Don't claim it. Please stand with me. My family moved here in the, and as we stand, please continue to stay focused in. There's still some meat left in this message. My family moved here in the summer of 2006 to plant a church and I have seen and been a part of every season of this body. I have a wealth of memories from this place among this people. In this church, I've acquired some of my deepest scars. I've sat under the the magnifying glass. I've watched my parents get falsely accused of things that would make you nauseous. I've been judged, I've been insulted, I've been slandered, I've been dishonored. However, in this church, I have also gained some of my closest friends and had some of my most joy-filled moments. In this place, I have been encouraged. I have been strengthened. I have been, sh- I have been sharpened, and I have been discipled. I have grown from a boy to a man among you. And somewhere in that process, along this eight-and-a-half-year journey, 
I've fallen in love. I've fallen in love with this church. I've fallen in love with you. It's not a cute puppy love that, 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 that it feels warm and, and nice and like, you know, Campbell's soup in my stomach. It doesn't feel that way. It, it's more like the love that Noah Gunderson describes when he's talking about his grandparents' relationship in the song San Antonio Fading. He says, like deep rivers underground. It's not flashy, but it's steady and it's unwavering. And because of this love, I'm telling you, I'm not gonna walk out on you. Micaiah and I will not be leaving this place unless, we are, unless it is confirmed by the Holy Spirit, by scripture, and by the leadership of this house that we are being sent out. Not leaving, but being sent out. And until then, I will walk with you, I will stand with you, I will fight with you, I will bear your burdens, I will hurt your feelings. And I'll get my feelings hurt by you. And there's gonna be times when it's easier for you to leave or for me to leave. There's gonna be times when it's easier for us to avoid each other and pretend like we don't, we're not a part of the same community. But just as Paul says in Ephesians chapter six, I will stand firm with you. Will you stand with me? Will you stand with me? See, this is your altar call moment. I'm not asking you to raise your hands or come forward. What I'm asking you to do is to lay your escape clause at the foot of Jesus. And I'm telling you that I'll do the same thing. And I wanna challenge you with this truth, that you might believe this truth, that you can fall in love with the church as I have. Let's close with the scripture from Colossians. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing, one, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against one another, forgiving each other. As I, as I have the Lord have, I'm sorry, backing up. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. The altars are open for prayer. Go in peace.